how does a scholar engage the community in the research process in a way that fosters equality? About this and other important topics is this conversation with Carmen González in this episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I'm delighted to have with us today Carmen González. Carmen holds the Dart and Doubt Professorship in Trauma, Journalism and Communication at the University of Washington in Seattle, where she is also Associate Director of the Center for Communication, Difference and Equity. Carmen got her BA, MA and PhD at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at the University of Southern California. She has been exceedingly productive Um, since finishing her PhD and her two postdoctoral uh, fellowships, one at the University of Southern California, the other at Rutgers University. She has more than two dozen peer-reviewed journal articles or proceeding conf computer science conference proceedings. Um, she also have, has a number of book chapters. Uh, on top of that, she has a lot of grants that she's received, including a $2 million, almost $2 million grant from the National Institutes of Mental Health two years ago. Uh, it's not surprising then that her scholarship has received numerous awards from the top scholarly societies in the field, including the International Communication Association, the National Communication Association, and the Association for Computer Machinery, and also from the leading funding bodies in the United States, including the National Science Foundation. Carmen, welcome to El Café Latinx. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm happy to be here. My pleasure. So, so how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? So this is a big question. Uh, and I am thinking about how far back to go. Um, but if, if I'm honest, uh, I, I go all the way back to elementary school. So this is going to sound very <laughs> nerdy of me but um I have always loved school uh when I was really young my teachers would comment on what a good writer I was um specifically I remember a third grade teacher Mr. Williams who I have to shout out uh, because he was so great at encouraging my my writing creative writing and just always kind of um, making sure that I knew that I had a gift Uh, and this was a big accomplishment for me to 
to be a good, a strong writer because uh, English was my second language. So um, in kindergarten, I started in Spanish only classrooms, uh, I think first grade as well and transitioned to fully English by second grade. Uh, so to be able to to pick up on English and, and write it well, uh, I was pretty proud of that. But I have to say a lot of that credit is to my mom, um, who did a lot of, uh, she learned English with us, with me and my two sisters, uh, and just kind of always encouraged a love of learning and nurtured that very genuinely. Uh, she even got a job at our elementary school, which now that I look back at it, I think was very intentional and strategic um, for her wanting us to be in that kind of environment. Uh, so I was always at school, whether it was, you know, after school waiting for my mom to be done with work. Um, my summers, I spent them at school. I would volunteer to like clean up the library or I would help teachers set up their classrooms. Uh, and, the, and I never really got tired of that or frustrated with um, being in that environment, it never felt forced. Um, so a lot of that I credit to my mom uh, in making sure that I would take every opportunity that came my way. My parents, they immigrated from Zapotlanejo, Jalisco, which is um, near Guadalajara, uh, in their 20s. Uh, my dad only did a couple years of schooling, uh, and my mom, she never got to finish high school. Both of them had to stop going to school to help support their families financially. Uh, so early on, I carried that with me and I appreciated all the opportunities that were offered to me because of these efforts of my parents uh, to provide us all the resources that we needed growing up. And in that way, you know, I, I found it a privilege to be in these academic environments as a young child. Uh, so since then, I, I still, and I'm still now, I love school. Uh, I love to be in learning environments uh, and collaborating, working with other folks who also love to learn. Um, so fast forward to my undergraduate years at USC. Uh, I wanted to be a journalist and that's why I applied to uh, go to the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Back then I got a degree in print journalism, which is funny because now I believe they're not saying print anymore. It's just journalism. Uh, and I did some internships at magazines, including some Latino specific magazines. And I thought I, I loved magazine writing. Uh, eventually I realized that wasn't the type of writing that was really satisfying or fulfilling to me. Uh, and I had a work study job at one of the research centers uh, called the Metamorphosis Project in the School of Communication. So I would be making uh, photocopies of books and articles for the communication PhD students. And I would secretly be making an extra copy for myself. And because I was curious about what they were reading, I was an undergrad in journalism. So I had no background in communication. Uh, and they were doing this awesome work that was community-based, uh, that was about storytelling uh, and very much bridging research and practice. So that was my introduction to the possibilities of a graduate education in communication specifically. That project was run by Dr. Sandra Balrokic, who quickly became my lifelong mentor. So she noticed my curiosity, um, 
put me through some tests to make sure that uh, I would be um, really invested in kind of making that shift from journalism to communication, which was a big shift for me uh, because I, I wasn't versed in communication theory, for example. Um, so she uh, slowly encouraged me to apply to the PhD program in communication. So I went straight from a bachelor's to a PhD program uh, and continued working with her and the Metamorphosis Project and my amazing colleagues uh, who, and, and I was hooked. So that, that was it for me. <laughs> um, I, I'm sure I had along the way some, you know, an identity crisis, wondering if I could be an academic, if I wanted to be. Uh, there were moments where, you know, I thought my skill sets would be better matched, you know, in the nonprofit sector, for example. Uh, I had some community partners who were trying to woo me to go be a community organizer. And that's probably something I would have considered doing as well. But I really, because of the graduate training that I got with Dr. Balwakich and the Metamorphosis Project, uh, I believed that I could make an impact uh, in this role as an academic, as a researcher, and that I could still do that grassroots work that was really at the core of my identity uh, in, in academia. And I saw that window um, to, to be able to do that and be successful and do it meaningfully. Had it not been for that early experience, I may have been less, felt less welcomed uh, in this role. Very interesting. So, so in your transition from undergraduate to graduate school, did you look at other schools or you just stayed uh, at USC um, without considering other options? Yeah, I did apply to other schools. I almost did an urban planning program at UCLA, I believe. <laughs> uh, I, I wasn't ready to, to do out of state. So I was doing, so I was looking at local program, master's programs. Uh, I was not looking at doctoral programs. That to me seemed very unfamiliar uh, and out of reach. It was nothing that I had considered for myself before. Uh, and I, my older sister did a master's program at UCLA, so that felt familiar to me. And I was uh, looking into uh, programs at the master's level. Okay. And so after the master's, then at, at USC, you stay there. You decided to do that. Okay. It was um, a master's MA PhD program. Okay. Okay. So you were already admitted to the PhD by applying. Okay. Okay. And, I, was, I was a lifelong Trojan. <laughs> yes, I can. I can see. Um, and you have moved far from uh, LA, but not outside of the West Coast. Yeah, I did that one year uh, postdoc right. at Rutgers, which was That's fun, right. and I got very lucky in being able to come back to the West Coast uh, in this position. Uh, a funny anecdote is that Sandra, my advisor, my mentor at one point told me that she envisioned me in the Pacific Northwest. And I brushed that off. I had no idea where that was coming from. Uh, and somehow here I am, it's been six going on seven years. Uh, and yeah, my husband and I, our two kids have settled in the, in the PNW in Seattle. All right, so she manifested. As, she did. All right, and it worked out. That's, yes, it has worked out, yeah. And I, I've been able to establish, 
you know, community connections and, and do work that I'm really passionate about here. It's a, and there's so much need uh, in Seattle and the greater Seattle, Seattle area in Washington. Absolutely. Now, take us a little bit through the journey. You're finishing uh, your PhD um, and you're considering options after that. You did a postdoc with uh, Sandra at the Metamorphosis Project. Then you did postdoc with Vicky Katz, right, at Rutgers. And then you went to the tenure track. How was that journey for you? So again, there's moments where uh, you question uh, your path right? And, and academia was always calling to me, especially once I learned about life as a tenure track professor from some of my friends that I had made in grad school. Uh, and you hear both good and bad things, but there were very few examples uh, that I could relate to of people who had my background who were in these tenure track positions. Uh, and so I was hesitant, honestly, to commit to that type of career path. Uh, because I wasn't sure if, if I would feel um, like I belonged. And there's always going to be some of that in me in spaces where I don't see anybody else that looks like me or that has a similar upbringing. Um, so at one point, I did also consider industry. I, I looked at um, jobs in tech and jobs in nonprofits and think tanks. And uh, when it came down to the decision, there were some uh, job offers in that world that I had to uh, consider against a tenure track um, assistant professor position. And how was that process for you? What, what tilted the balance in favor of academia? Yeah, I think going back to that love of being in school, uh, even uh, when I came to the University of Washington for my interview and uh, they were very smart in walking me around the campus, uh, showing me all these spaces that, and setting up a really great welcome for me. Uh, I think that reminded me of that feeling that I always had being at a, on a university campus, um, that it, seeing young people, being able to uh, be around just different kinds of cultures and languages and backgrounds, uh, despite not necessarily feeling fully represented myself, uh, I felt that it was a place where I could grow uh, and bring on some um, more Latino students, for example, or bring on more folks interested in community research. And to this day, I still feel like that's, that's what brought me here and, and that's why I'm still here. Uh, because I'm able to do that as an academic. I love being around young people and paying it forward in the way that I was, I had quality mentorship and still do. Uh, and I'm trying to do that for my students as well. All right. So, so then reflecting on that journey, what would you say are some sort of lessons learned um, for you that you think might apply to other people who are say starting their PhD and they're considering careers inside and outside academia and then navigating the transition to tenure track? Yeah, so I, I will say again that the opportunity that I had to live in a city that uh, I wanted to live in is pretty unique, right? So this is a reality that I talk about with my students who are in, in this place of considering different options. Uh, 
there's such limited opportunities in academia for tenure track positions. Um, not all of them are fairly compensated. And so all of that has to come into play, into play when you make these decisions. Uh, I try to be honest with my students about uh, the rigor that a tenure track position at an R1 university demands uh, and some of the sacrifices that you might be making in your personal life to be able to pursue this. Uh, so I did have folks who were being honest with me about those realities when I was considering different sectors. Uh, but on the upside, there's a lot of flexibility, autonomy. Uh, there's, I can do very uh, meaningful, fulfilling work in my role as a faculty member. Uh, the most important thing is that if what makes me happy is to be a mentor and to work with young people and to be in a learning environment, then, then that is what's going to be fulfilling in the long term, right? That's always what I'm gonna come back to. And I had to be honest with myself about that love, that passion uh, that I, I understood, you know, since a very early age. Okay, very interesting. And then how have the, the tenure track years been for you? How has that process gone for you? You mentioned that um, I'm assuming temporarily this overlaps with starting a family. Yes. Um, and um, um, to the extent that you, you want to share, I mean, there is a lot of conversation in academia right now, in particular after, you know, during COVID about work-family balance, in particular for women. Um, who often bear the brunt of, uh, you know, household work and all of that. Uh, they shouldn't, but they, they, the reality is that they, they do, um, sadly. So, um, so how, how has that process been for you? Um, and, um, and what kind of sort of advice or reflections at least you think you can share with people who who are or might be in the future in, in similar situations. So how real do you want me to get <laughs> with this? As concept? real as you want to share, it's up to you. <laughs> uh, I think right now uh, in, in the last 18 months, um, this question about work-life balance has uh, it become a topic of conversation even for folks who hadn't considered that before. Um, the realities of um, not just being on the tenure track, but, but being a professional with young children. When I think about my early years uh, in my assistant professor position, I was devoted to my job. I was able to still, um, I got married. I was able to continue a relationship that I had started um, before moving to Seattle. Uh, and, but that, it took uh, effort, it took, uh, understanding, sensibility, uh, to be able to focus both on my family life and my professional life. And I have to be honest that along the way I did get comments, you know, when I, when I had my son, my first son, um, it was my third year in the, on the tenure track. And there were some indirect comments about, you know, maybe you should wait until you have tenure to have children. Are you concerned about uh, the impact on your productivity. Uh, I, I had my first son in 2018, my second son in 2020. Um, so he's a pandemic baby. 
uh, and I I got a comment from from a senior <laughs> colleague who questioned the timing of that and said you're going to do it again pre tenure and so soon. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so these comments are obviously microaggressions. I, I it makes you wonder if uh, you know a male colleague would get the same kind of comments if um, uh, a person that is not uh, minoritized would get the same kind of comment and they're veiled as this like protective uh, concern for me and, and my well-being and, and my productivity and climbing the ladder. Um, but they're also signal that, I, that I'm supposed to sacrifice family life for academic life. Uh, and based on my story that I just told you, I was never prepared to do that. Right, I, I, in grad school, I wasn't prepared to do that. I didn't do it. Uh, I've been very stubborn in wanting to do the type of work that um, fulfills me, that is true to who I am. And the same thing applies here. So uh, I'm an example of somebody who uh, did not sacrifice family life uh, for the tenure track academic life. And I'm proud of that. And I encourage other uh, faculty members who are in that same position to drown out those, those critiques or those, those veiled concerns uh, to pursue uh, what makes them happy. Uh, if, I don't think if you're, if you're not fulfilled professionally, it will impact every aspect of your life, right? And to me, that's not worth it. It's, it wouldn't be true to who I am. Family is very important to me. Uh, whether it's my nuclear family or um, my extended kind of community of, of collaborators and um, community partners and people I've met along the way. Very interesting. And I'm sorry to hear about those comments um, that you received. Um, so since you mentioned the extended community of collaborators, um, you have been um, very, very prolific, not only in your writing, but in your partnering with um, different people. And you publish not only in the social sciences, but also in the engineering sciences, in the computer science conference proceedings, et cetera, which is an even more collaborative intellectual space um, than the social sciences. So, so how has that happened for you? Um, um, and how do you choose your collaborators and how do you maintain and nurture those relationships? So as a communication scholar, I think I've had to defend this practice quite often, unfortunately. Uh, I think less now than, uh, than I did in, in my early years on the tenure track. Um, I'm, up, I'm getting reviewed for tenure right now. Um, and it, so far it has not come up as something that is a uh, uh, outlier in our field. Um, but I have had moments where, whether it was the engaged work or the collaborative work or the interdisciplinary nature of what I do has come into question as, is it communication enough? Um, does it, uh, is there, do I have enough of a presence uh, in a particular, area of our field. Um, but I have also gotten encouragement to continue on the exact track that I'm on right now. And that really the, the one of my deans once told me that the future of social science is interdisciplinary. 
uh, and does have to think about addressing social issues in a way that uh, is collaborative. So in terms of choosing partners, uh, I have a lot of folks come to me now to actually it's it's a gift and a curse because there's so many things that I wish I could participate in. I probably say yes too much. You know, it's obviously something we all work on. Uh, but because I uh, do communication in a way that is applied and that contributes to um, other efforts to, to design tools, to innovate, uh, I, I get a lot of requests to partner and, and being selective is probably uh, the biggest challenge for me right now. And how do you select? <laughs> what, what criteria or criterion do you use for that? Yeah. Do you have some sort of tips to share with the audience? So again, think, you know, just thinking, reflecting on my process of putting my tenure packet together, for example, uh, I, I am conscious of uh, being able to thread my work together in a way that, that tells a story and that is uh, truly reflective of uh, what brings me from one project to another. Um, so, uh, the tenure narrative, for example, was a very good practice in building that narrative and understanding where I live in communication, but where I live as a social scientific scholar, as an engaged scholar. Uh, so now more than ever, I think the way that I select uh, projects to participate in or collaborations to pursue is are they true to this core of interest that I have, which is that intersection of health and digital equity. So if it's not centered on that, if it's not engaged, uh, applied, and has a community-based component, then I won't do it. Okay, very interesting. And since you mentioned the issue of equity, um, your, your research is not only community-based and engaging with the community, but they are also very involved in building community within the academy. Uh, together with Marina Joseph, you sort of lead the Center for Communication Difference and Equity. Mm -hmm. um, what's the history behind this center and, and what are your goals and, and what has been the experience so far for you? Mm -hmm. So the center launched uh, the same year that I was hired and it was I was uh, strategically kind of brought in to uh, help develop the center and our goals uh, and think about the ways that we engage uh, as a department with the broader university community. Um, the CCDE has now become a resource for graduate students, faculty, community partners, industry partners uh, to talk about social difference, specifically race, uh, in a way that is constructive, that leads to social change, uh, and that is genuinely committed to equity and social justice. Um, we have graduate students come to us from all these different disciplines that are not getting that social justice training or orientation that they would like. Um, so we serve that role. We uh, are a bridge to community partners, uh, again, in that rapport and trust building that's so important. 
we are now uh, recognized for doing that and doing it very genuinely and intentionally. Uh, and we are a community within a community. So um, we are not, we try to be as inclusive as possible by um, looking at the different ways that equity and, and social justice manifest in our daily lives. So um, there's not one particular focus uh, of the center, but instead we respond to what's happening in the current moment. Um, for the last two years or so, it really has been about health equity and social justice. Um, and what we talk about as kind of the two pandemics that intersected uh, in, in very heartbreaking ways often. Absolutely. And since you mentioned, you know, the, the realities of the tenure track at an R1 and also uh, the current um, climate and you, you're crafting your, you know, research narrative for your tenure packet. Um, the truism at research universities was for many, many years that it was all about the research output. Um, but center of this kind takes, I'm assuming, based on personal experience of you know, comparable or related initiatives, an enormous amount of time, time that is therefore not devoted to either personal life or you know, research output. So how has been the response to it and whether, you know, have you seen since the time you start your tenure track and therefore your involvement with the center? Have you seen, have you seen since then like a shift or has it been steady in terms of how it's valued and the, the role it has? Yeah, there's lots of conversations and even uh, changes in policy about how to, for example, review um, productivity or outputs for tenure. Um, the way that we think about service uh, and how for me specifically my research is often um, so uh, em embedded in these service oriented practices um, that it's hard to untangle those right so uh, that was tricky to write also um, you know you have to be explicit about research compared to service compared to teaching uh, and I found that for me because everything that I do is grounded in equity, uh, that they're all interconnected in a really great way. Um, so I think I'm an example of um, how this type of work is being more embraced in academia, more embraced in communication. Um, I, I will say that I think communication has been slower to come around to valuing the types of work that, that are engaged, that are uh, more interdisciplinary and considered uh, outside of those communication silos that often exist. Uh, but I am very excited to see that these conversations are happening and that policy is actually changing to uh, evaluate our work in, in more uh, open-minded open ways um, that, that really protects our time and um, helps us be able to do this work. Absolutely. Now, since you mentioned the field as a whole and issues of, of equity and speaking in particular about the, the Latinx, Latina, Latino experience in the US, um, you know, in academia in general, there was a recent um, 
article that was published in 538 by colleagues of ours at Cornell and a couple of other places uh, that essentially uh, documented that Latinx, Latina, Latino faculty in the US constitute around 6% of the tenure track body, but the, uh, the population in the overall population, uh, it's, it's almost 19% according to the most recent census. So it's not even a third. Yeah. Um, so where do you see the field of communication relative to um, the Latinx, Latina, Latino community in terms of representation, in terms, not, not just only the, the, the numbers from representation, but also the kinds of topics that get discussed, the conceptual frameworks that get appreciated, um, leadership uh, in journals, in organizations, etc. What's your take uh, of where things are and where they could be? I think it's still a long road for our discipline. Uh, I think we are, thanks to a lot of great uh, advocates who are very outspoken uh, within our field and then allies that we have maybe outside of our field uh, that are calling attention to um, really disparities uh, within academia. Uh, I think that we're only starting to call attention to uh, how important it is to disrupt the status quo. Uh, and that's a slow process. It, it's, it's going to be a slow process, whether we're thinking about diversifying you know, tenure track faculty, we have the same problem with graduate students and thinking about retention. Uh, I've been dealing a lot with that. So I'm, I very intentionally recruit Latino, Latinx students, and then have a hard time supporting them through finishing. Um, we have really poor retention strategies and rates um, for um, some of these students. And a lot, of, a lot of it is often that they have family demands and realities that don't mesh with academic life. Um, so it's, it's hard to push students to continue when you know that they have these other uh, responsibilities that they have to take care of. So, so I do think it's a long road. I think we're only in the beginning, but I feel really proud of um, all of my colleagues who are putting themselves out there in calling attention to this. I wish I could do more of it. I've been a little busy, but I think post-tenure, uh, this is something that I want to hold myself accountable to, to, to be one of those voices. Absolutely. Um, so then if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? So I think more conceptually, I, I would wish for uh, more openness, uh, more appreciation of different approaches, methodologies, uh, different translations of theory uh, into practice, and a more genuine, intentional response to the needs of vulnerable communities. Uh, which can be defined very broadly. Uh, but it seems to me that as communication scholars, we're the best situated right now um, to contribute 
work that can make a difference in, in so many different contexts. You know, I my presentation was about COVID and uh, this was a time for, for communication scholars to shine and to uh, meaningfully, you know, invest in, in these efforts to uh, address disproportionate impacts of the pandemic on vulnerable communities. Uh, and that, that does happen now, I'm not gonna say it doesn't, but I think communication uh, has a little bit of a long road to go in doing that. I wish it were faster. All right, thank you very much, Carmen, for sharing your experiences, your journeys, and your very important reflections and thoughts with us. Uh, it's been a privilege to have you here. Thank you to our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thank you again, Carmen. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.